0: friends, and welcome to The Membership, a podcast about the life and work of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, and activist. My name is Jason Hardy, and I'm joined by two fellow members. This is Tim Wassum, and this is John Pattison. So today, uh, we are continuing with Wendell Berry's uh, short fiction, continuing in, uh, in chronological order. Um, we are up to, is it 1912? Yeah, is that yeah, right? we're in, in the I, I, I did Port William time. We're in the mm-hmm. 1910s, yep. yeah, yeah, 1912, and uh, we're talking about the the relatively long short story "Pray Without Ceasing." This was originally published in uh, the Southern Review, but it was also published in the uh, short story collection called Fidelity. This was the, uh, as I mentioned in our zero episode, this is the first short story that that I ever read of of Wendell Berry's, and actually the first Wendell Berry fiction that that I. I ever read, so it, it holds a special place in my heart. Had you guys read this story before?
1: Yeah, I think this is the, I'd I read it a couple times before, but it had been,
2: I don't know, three or four years since I had read it last. So I was happy to read it again, for sure. That's basically the same for me. It's been a few, I've read it before, but it's been a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: This is a story, uh, I, I talked about Jaber Crow being a, a novel where I remembered where I was when I was reading it. This is actually a story that I remember where I was when I was reading it like you, but I was sitting, the first time I read it, my parents were still in town, they were working at the seminary, my dad was working at the seminary in town, and I was sitting just kind of in a big, this big beautiful room outside of his office that had a fireplace going, sitting in a big leather chair, and I remember it being like a pretty great experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) reading this collection, it was actually from Fidelity, when I first read it as well, that
2: I had borrowed, I borrowed from my father-in-law, yeah. Jason, do you remember where you were specifically when you read it?
0: Oh yeah, this is the this is the story I I read when I was sitting in the library. At, oh, this at, was at, at Belmont. Yeah,
2: when your so. when your
1: dorm room was made inhabitable as uninhabitable. uninhabitable yeah, as yeah, you exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, just hanging out in the library, pulled down Fidelity and uh, and started, and that was my uh, yeah. It was the first thing. It was come to think of it, it was the first. Uh, piece of writing by Wendell Berry. Period that I read. So, and you thought in ten years I'm going to start a podcast? I'm start a podcast about this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'll give a, a little bit of a synopsis for readers who maybe haven't read it, or uh, readers, listeners who haven't read it, or or who for whom it's been a while. This is uh, a story that's uh, sort of a story within a story. There's a frame narrative. Andy Catlett, who is uh by all accounts Wendell Berry's representative in Port William. He is the character who most most resembles Wendell Berry. Uh he comes across a uh a newspaper clipping from nineteen twelve about his uh the murder of his great grandfather, Ben Coulter. And he he decides that he needs to go um sorry, I said Ben Coulter. It's Ben Feltner. Thank you, Tim, uh, for pointing to my notes. I, I uh, would
2: imagine that that's not the first time that's going to, the last no, time that oh that's going to happen. Right, today. right.
0: There's lots of Coulters all... and lots of Feltners.
2: There's only four last names
0: in Wiggleberry's Right, Vic, right exactly. <laughs> it's easy to, e- easy to mix them up. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, Andy Catlett, we we come to find out, is is a Feltner and a Coulter. Uh, he has Feltners <laughs> and Coulters in his family tree. So, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. and that's that's part of the, uh, the beauty of the story, but but Ben Feltner, Andy Catlett's great grandfather, was murdered by Thad Coulter, who was a friend of uh, Ben Feltner's. And uh, Andy Catlett goes to see his his grandfather, Matt Feltner, and his uh, and his grandmother. And his grandmother ends up telling him the full story, which he's never really heard before about how Ben Feltner was uh, was murdered. So. I think a good place to start would be maybe to talk about that frame narrative and maybe some of the uh, some of the text we have in that frame narrative. The, the story starts out with sort of a, uh, I was joking with Tim before we started a, a Eliot esque meditation on time and eternity. And I, I wondered what you guys thought about that. I'll, I'll read Just a paragraph from that. Andy Catlett starts out by talking about how you know he he recognizes that he is uh, affected by the past of his family and his community, even if he doesn't know what that past is. So um, I'll start reading here. But even the unknown past is present in us. Its silence as persistent as a ringing in the ears. When I stand in the road that passes through Port William, I am standing on the strata of my history that go down through the known past into the unknown. The black top rests on state gravel, which rests on county gravel, which rests on the creek rock and cinders laid down by the town when it was still mostly beyond the reach of the county, and under the creek rock and cinders is the dirt track of the town's beginning, the buffalo trace that was the way we came. You work your way into the interior of the present until you finally come to that beginning in which all things, the world and the light itself, at a word, weld up into being out of their absence. And nothing is here that we are beyond the reach of merely because we do not know about it. It is always the first morning of creation and always the last day, always the now that is in time and the now that is not that has filled time with reminders of itself. So what do you guys think is going on there? Why have this meditation at the beginning of this particular story?
1: I think, and I'm, I'm speaking in a bit of a generality that I don't know if I can back up completely, but at least it's like a gut feeling that Wendell Berry has a tendency to set up a story by explaining kind of on the per by coming at it from the periphery of why it's an important story to him or like why it's a meaningful story um i i think that comes out, or maybe maybe even what i'm thinking of is how he approaches his essays but i think he's setting it up with almost a, a little bit of a sermon of sorts or a little bit of a yeah. a mini essay that he's approaching saying that kind of putting again in once putting in context once again his attitude towards his place and his attitude towards how he sees, and I, and I use this phrase a lot, but how he sees an infinity within the small place where he is. The first morning of creation and always the last day, and this is without even leaving home. So I guess that's, I don't know if that answer makes any sense, but that's just, I feel like he's putting, he's giving us a sort of foundation on which to lay this story.
2: Yeah, I love what he does. I, I You're right that this is not an unusual approach for him, but I, I, I found myself just really loving the way that the the story itself is a kind of a meditation on on time and how what's past is is present. And this that's something he touches on a lot at the beginning, but comes back to it at the end, as well. Even you know talking about how he remembers his his grandfather's uh, the touch of his hand on his knee, and that past action is as present to him now as it was then. And he says the same thing about later when his when his grandmother touches his hand um right. like leaves an imprint on his yeah leaves his an imprint mm-hmm. and this is uh, we know that Andy Catlett is sort of the memory keeper he's the memory keeper for Port William mm-hmm. or one of the memory keepers and i can't help but picture this this character who is walking through a town of his town of Port William and the the streets that he's walking down are, are sort of are, are peopled with ghosts almost mm-hmm. who are alive to him because he knows and uh, cherishes and safeguards these these memories yeah i th- I think that to go right along
1: with that the I feel like the crux of that whole introduction, that whole space is that line that you reference the the past is present in us it's silence as persistent as a ringing in the ears. I think that the reason he's he's starting out by saying this is he's setting up this idea that this story, the silence from this story, what he didn't know about his great grandfather has been ringing in his ears his whole life, and now mm-hmm. he's at that point in life where. His grandfather is literally in bed, sick, near the end of his life. His, his grandmother, it, it almost seems at the beginning of the story that he's not even really sure how much his grandmother knows uh, because they have this tendency to keep things from her a little bit. Um, and so he's saying, here's a story I'm going to tell you that's been, that it's, the absence of this story has been ringing in my ears my whole life,
0: and now it's time, mm-hmm. to, time to figure it out. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> of, course. <laughs> of course. Good job, Tim. Thank you. You passed. Right. Good night, everybody. You yeah, passed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I. You know, talking about John, what you said about Andy Catlett being the the memory keeper or one of the memory keepers for Port William, I it stood out to me that he gets that. Not from his grandfather, not from Matt Feltner, because Matt Feltner has never told him this story, mm-hmm. has never talked about this story. It is from his grandmother mm-hmm. who yeah that he that he hears this story yeah. um, he he definitely sets you up to think it's going to be his grandfather,
1: mm-hmm. but then before he even gets the chance to ask, that's what's
0: yeah, so interesting yeah. Yeah. i mean and and it it even says that this story has has proceeded, has been kept by. Not just his grandmother, but by the women who were there, mm. right? Says so she. She told the story well, giving many details. She had a good memory, and she had lived many years with her mother-in-law, who had also had a good one. I have the impression that they, but not my grandfather, had pondered together over the event many times. <laughs> she spoke as if she were seeing it all happen, even the parts of it that she had not, in fact, not seen. So we'll get to this later, but. That's because all the men of the
1: town were out with pitchforks, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Where, uh, just the people who were the most present are the ones who
0: were there to care. Yeah. So, that's, that's that's great. So, I mean, at the at the heart of this story is an act of violence. Uh, this is about as violent as a Wendell Berry story gets, right? Thad Coulter, we're told, in, I mean, relatively graphic detail, shoots uh, Ben Feltner in the head. I guess we should give a little bit more background about why he did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thad Coulter is a friend to Ben Feltner. Ben Feltner is is older, I think we're told, than than Thad, but he has he's helped him along the way, he's sort of been an older older friend and almost a mentor to Thad Coulter uh, in his life and Thad Coulter's son, Abner, essentially signed a loan for Thad to open up a grocery store mm-hmm. in uh, the nearby town of Hargrave, and uh, so Thad... His,
1: his farm was collateral. Yeah, recently. yeah,
0: using his farm as collateral, which he had just paid off, and Thad's son, Abner, essentially fritters the money away and loses his store and just runs away, rides out of town, doesn't come back, and the bank comes calling to Thad and, uh, and is collecting money, well, co- coming to collect the farm, essentially, to take the farm from him because uh, his son is defaulting on this loan. So Thad goes home, uh, is distraught, gets drunk, Decides to go see his friend Ben um, and ask him if if he can help in some way, but he's he's drunk and combative, and Ben tells him, "You know what? I can't talk to you right now. Why don't you Why don't you come back later?" Uh, and this makes him angry. He takes it uh, takes it poorly, takes it as a complete rejection, which it, it it absolutely isn't. It's it's a very gentle, yeah. I mean, everything everything about
1: Ben's reaction to mm-hmm. him is very. Measured, sure. Gentle, yeah. Not
0: abrasive at all. He's just kind of like, "Why don't you come back and talk to me later?" Yeah. Uh, and so Ben goes into town and tries to find some of some of Thad's relatives. Dave Coulter, his uh, who's is it? Is, is it his Burley's dad? Cousin, but it's Bur- Burley Coulter's yeah. dad. Uh, and he starts talking to them and and trying to get them to help, and and they're. They're just about to start formulating a plan. It seems like to help help yeah. Thad out of his trouble, and
1: Ben even alludes to, "Yeah, there's something we can do. But let's, let's talk about it." Like right. he, he already has a plan in his head somewhere. Yeah,
0: and then Thad comes riding into town, the gun, and he's so drunk and angry and hurt uh, that he shoots he shoots Ben in the head. So yeah, at the at the heart of this story is uh, is an act of is an act of violence. What role do you guys think violence violence plays in this story and and more than that our the human instinct towards violence well there are, I mean, there are a few a few different places in which thad and and even Matt
2: are described as being almost joyful with the intent to commit violence yeah and that was re- that was really striking for me both you know if thad like was yeah, described as either being joyful or feeling elated when he had resolved and in his drunkenness to to kill Ben, and then later Matt Feltner, after he sees that that has done this, he is described as being either joyful or elated because of, of his intent to to exact revenge uh it, and so yeah that was <clears throat> i think it's 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 all about the human will is not the right word but the propensity f- toward violence i mean he says at the beginning he says this is a story that goes back to to Cain and Abel mm-hmm yeah, yeah, I was, and and you know, while I obviously, and the listeners will be gra- grateful to to know this, while I have never uh, committed murder, <laughs> while, <laughs> while while I have never been murderous, I actually I have experienced rage in which I felt almost elated in my rage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, righteous in my rage, and so I found myself even very much identifying with Dad's character. Though I am not and will never be a murderer, yeah. I still see him, and you know it reminds me of what Andy Catlett's grandmother says when she's beginning to tell the story that that Thad was a little child, mm-hmm. and and that we're all little children, and some people know it and some and some don't, which of course reminds us of the of Burley's statement about being members mm-hmm. of how some people know it and some people don't but that we're all little children and that some know it and some and some don't and Andy admits that at 30 years old hearing the story for the first time he didn't know it yet but uh yeah i found that even that i found him not only compelling but even relatable
0: sure yeah, and we're told he's not a bad he's not a bad man like even Andy's grandmother margaret who is Telling Andy the story tells tells him Thad wasn't a bad man, you know. That's right, leading into the comment about being a, we're all children, yeah. right? It's all, yeah. yeah. Um, like we all have this, we all have this instinct within us. It's how, it's whether or not we're aware of it and able to, able to counter it with mm-hmm. with something more human. I mean, I think, I think this leads up to the what I think is the climax of the story, which is the wrestling match between yes. uh, Jack Beecham and, and Matt Feltner. But I want to read just, just the part before that one. So after, uh, after Ben is killed, we're told that it, the, the story sort of shifts to Matt, Matt his son's perspective. Uh, he's in town. He's at the blacksmith shop and someone tells him, or or he sees that that something is going on, so he walks out and sees that it's his father who's been been killed, and um, I'll read a little bit uh, from it there. When Matt stood up again from his father's side, he was a man new created by rage. All that he had been and thought and done gave way to this one desire to kill the man who had killed his father. He ached mind and body with the elation of that one thought, and in that Mm -hmm. thought... I'm um, skipping ahead a little bit and in that thought which lived more in his right arm <laughs> than in his head both he and his enemy were as clear of history as if newborn. <laughs> I really like that because I think this this maybe ties back to that opening section about time and, and eternity and that uh your connectedness to what has has come before and what will come after you.
1: And maybe like, uh, yeah and maybe a connection to like we can be right back at the beginning of creation again any minute. Yeah. Like for each of us. Like at some sure. point something can trigger you off and you're back to Cain and Abel yeah. all
0: of a sudden. Well, and I you know, with Barry's sort of antipathy toward any kind of abstraction, that strikes me as what he's saying is that instinct towards violence is an instinct towards an abstraction that refuses to see your place in, in history or your place in a chain of a chain of consequences. It's just mm-hmm you're If you follow that path, you're removed from from your place and your relation to other people. But right after this, uh, we're told that Jack Beecham, Matt's uncle, uh, margaret uh Margaret's brother, or no, sorry, Nancy's brother sees sees the commotion someone tells him hey this is your this is your nephew out here they've killed uh they've killed ben and he runs out of the, the shop that he's in and sees matt running after thad coulter and essentially tackles him uh and there's sort of this wrestling match between the two of them and we're told that eventually matt settles down and jack feels like something has is taken out of him and goes into matt and uh, I'll read a little bit from that. Uh what went out of Jack and came in, came into Matt or so it seemed for in that desperate embrace he became a stronger man than he had been. A strength came into him that held his grief and his anger as Jack had held him. I think that's I think that's beautiful. And and so well connected
1: to the rest of the stories of Port William when you, when you think about which this is this is far away from us talking about but the memory of old Jack um, when we talk about him in that book, in his old age, he seems like a sort of brittle old little man, mm-hmm. like a little old man, you know. And and at this point, I think, and if I if I remember right, he even makes, uh, Andy makes a point to mention that Jack still had strength in him, even though mm-hmm. he was already like getting along in age, that he still had this sort of vitality to him and this strength. Right. Yeah, it's a great connection.
0: I mean, it's a it's sort of a different kind of strength, right? We're told that Matt is you know about half Jack's age, um, and yet he's able to, yeah. This this strength leaves Jack and comes into Matt, and this strength is what allows him to take a step back and move away from his uh, his instinct towards violence, Hmm. which is to me the center of the story.
2: And this is one of the most memorable scenes in all of Winleberry's fiction for me. I think about this scene quite a lot, actually. I don't even know why, but it the the thought of yeah, these two like of one man essentially like bear hugging another, keeping him immobile, and feeling something go out of him as a result of this struggle is just so beautifully written and yeah, and just 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 masterful. How's that for? Trenchant analysis. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's the the hinge
1: from Jack going from manhood mm-hmm. to being to his elder years or his elderly life, and then it's the it's the hinge between or the I guess the the turn from Matt going from being a boy to being a man. Kind of. mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's great. Which, which pays off a little later in the story, which we'll get to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little later, that the the moment with Jack is in a, is essentially the setup for the payoff that comes just a, just a little bit later when people are beginning to look for a solution or beginning to try to figure out what to do with everything that's happened. That was intentionally very vague because I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But
0: <laughs> Well, so, I mean, I, I think we've already sort of started to mention this, but there's I, I feel like this is one of the more overtly Christian stories in the Windleberry Canon. There's so many references, uh, like to Cain and Abel. The the title, "Pray Without Ceasing." We have the word that created in the beginning. What what do you all make of the the religious uh, sort of overtones to to this story? Feels like a story divided,
1: kind of straight down the middle. Where you've got sort of the gritty reality of what's happening, and then you have. There's not like a religious explanation, well, I mean, in some ways there is, but I didn't, when I read it this time, I didn't focus on like the, gr- the religious explanation for what's happening, but mm-hmm. rather the religious way that people handle the aftermath of what happened, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, it feels like a very real kind of gritty story where even, it was super interesting to me the way that the Hargrave sheriff talks about Port William as being this, like, Wild West that's off there. It's like, I wish you guys would just stay over there and kill yourselves over there. Like, <laughs> right, just right. kill each other over there or whatever. That um, it's in that sense that it's very human. And Port William seems like this weird little cut off community where all these crazy things happen and people are messing with each other and people are, sometimes people die and sometimes people take care of each other. So in that sense, it doesn't feel very religious, but I think the religious part of it, and maybe unintentionally, the the divide is that the religion comes from the females in the story (laughs) and the sort of human conflict and mess comes from the male side of the story because we get told in the line, pray without ceasing comes from, um, somebody's going to remind me with the name. Who says that? Oh, yeah. it's it's, Paul, it's Della. Paul.
0: Yeah, it's oh, it's Miss Della. I thought you were Miss saying. Della. Where did it yeah. come from originally? Yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. Saint, isn't Saint, it Saint Paul. Paul? Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, the Bible. The no, Bible. No, yeah. the character in the story who brings it up. Yeah, Just that, that even her. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I just I love grief. that title for this because of uh, we are all as little children. Mm-hmm. Um, Framer Hardy in the beginning says like something like there's no telling what a human being is going to do. There's, there's no way to know. Yeah. So this idea of of praying without ceasing so that we can be good human beings. So it'll keep you out of trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, keeping us out of, out of what we know we're all capable of. That seems like a really powerful idea and and a really, a really Christian idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like I've been a little in the past few episodes when we've been talking about some of the early nonfiction and, and, in early poetry, I think what what has struck me about that is Barry's pushing back against institutional religion but i don't I don't hesitate to call this a a Christian story in in the best sense of that, right, and
2: remember too that Andy Catlett when he thinks of his grandmother sitting there in her rocking chair uh, he though he had never heard her pray, he assumes that what she's doing is she
0: just his sits praying, there. Yeah.
2: Day after day is is praying essentially
0: praying yeah. without ceasing.
1: It's it is when you think about just that passage of pray without ceasing and uh, this is it's a very it's a very Christian story and its themes. But at the same time, it's not for lack of a better way to describe it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh yeah, you know it's it's oh, definitely yeah. it's 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 framed in a way that's it's it the uh, the passage that's used in the way that it's talked about makes it seem very sort of just like simple baseline moral human being like how do you handle mm-hmm. something like this and how do you uh how do you treat one another and and even praying without ceasing that i think to the characters in this i don't think everybody in this i don't even think math necessarily is this super pious you know i'm going to drop to my knees and pray without ceasing about this but like even just that phrase is able to translate into his own version of it or something yeah right how he's gonna handle it he's like I, I see what you're saying and for him this praying without ceasing idea is just like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna let myself fall into what's about to happen in front of me and this is what i was referring to later uh, referring to earlier where the sort of vigilante group of men come up to the house ready to find justice that uh, that 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 phrase itself pray without ceasing is enough for him to say like there's something better to do in this situation than what you guys want to do, right? Right. <laughs> uh, such as pray, or such as just stay put for a second and, and just chill.
2: So yeah. And you go if you go back and look at the the context for that for that verse in First Thessalonians five, pray without ceasing is in verse sixteen. But if you go up a little bit, uh, you see that Paul is sort of giving his final instructions to the Thessalonians, and he says. Uh, Leading up to that, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always Mm -hmm. seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that's the Bible, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Just kidding>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's that's great, and that, uh, yeah. it is. It, it does it opens up the story a little bit when you hear all that uh, together, you know. Um, and it, it kind peace. of explains
2: yeah. evil for be evil. At peace, Yeah, mm-hmm. be I patient. You help the weak and mm-hmm. help the weak. You know that is that's Thad Coulter's daughter helping, caring for her father even as uh, you know, when he's when he's drunk. Caring for him when he's in jail, it's Jack Beecham caring for matt feltner i, lo- I love- the it's line. it's Ben Feltner caring for for thad
0: yeah
1: yeah for sure i I love the line uh that it, this is about thad's relationship with his daughter and it says that her uh he said that her concern gives him shelter or something something along along yeah. those lines that mm-hmm. that kind of applies to all those relationships that the concern or the care of them is in itself a shelter from the storm?
0: Uh, well, let me read along those lines. Let me read, if you'll indulge me, my favorite passage from the book. Um, this is uh, this is Margaret, Margaret Feltner talking, um, Andy's grandmother talking to him. People sometimes talk of God's love as if it's a pleasant thing, but it is terrible in a way. Think of all it includes. It included Thad Coulter drunk and mean and foolish, before he killed Mr. Feltner, and it included him afterwards. She reached out then and touched the back of my right hand with her fingers. My right, my hand still bears that touch, invisible and yet indelible as a tattoo. That's what Thad saw. This is uh, another quote, her talking again. That's what Thad saw. He saw his guilt. He had killed his friend. He had done what he couldn't undo. He had destroyed what he couldn't make. But in the same moment, he saw his guilt included in the love that stood as near him as Martha Elizabeth. And at that moment, wore her flesh. It was surely weak and wrong of him to kill himself, to sit in judgment that way over himself. But surely God's love includes people who can't bear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, yeah, I think that's, I think that's beautiful. Um, it's a lot to think
1: about with those lines. Yeah, with the the talk of suicide and uh, and to read read that again was it? it was uh, that it would include. Where is it? It was surely it was surely weak and wrong of him to kill himself to sit in judgment that way over himself. But surely God's love includes people who can't bear it. It's so heartbreaking those scenes where Thad's in in jail. Yeah, and he's and he literally won't take his hands off of his face covering his hands or covering his face with his with his hands and mm-hmm. and uh, Martha Elizabeth is is literally like scooping up food and like trying to get it between his hands and like into mm-hmm. his mouth and giving him a little sip of water. Mm-hmm. He barely lets her give anything but he, he won't even let her look at him. Yeah. Uh, for days, right? For two days mm-hmm. almost or, or eight, you know, day and a half or something like that. It's heartbreaking because um, we, we basically, one, one part of the story we haven't really referred to is that after he kills him, he gets onto his, onto his mule. He's rolling out of town. He kind of hides in the brush and, and basically goes straight for... And we, we get to see his process of sobering up, kind of. Yeah. yeah. We see him go from this drunk who just killed... And another great line we haven't referenced yet is that he says, that I just killed the best friend I ever had. Yeah. Is what he ends up telling the, the sheriff at Hargrave. But we see him in his process of sobering up to the point where he gets to Hargrave and he decides, well, I've got nothing to do but turn myself in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Ugh gosh and it's just uh, you you can feel the weight of it
2: yeah on him and and eventually martha
0: who walks it right mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah and then you have margaret feltner mm-hmm. saying to andy like the implications of of that kind of love when she says if god loves the ones we can't then finally maybe we can and she says all these years i've thought of him meaning thad coulter sitting in those shadows with Martha, with Martha Elizabeth standing beside him, and his work-sore old hands over his
0: face. So we've got to talk about we've we've been alluding we've been alluding to it. Uh, we've got to talk about the end of the story. So Tim, you want to walk us through the end of the story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after
0: the wrestling match
1: between Jack and Matt that happens, uh, he sends it's his. Who, who comes back to the house? I'm
0: Matt comes back to the house um, and tells his mother okay. what, is, what has happened. Sorry. And Jack um, brings the body. Yeah, so,
1: yeah, I was I sort of conflated another character in there for some reason on this <laughs> last reading. But, uh, yeah, so Matt comes back to, to to share the news. And so he basically sets it up so that everybody else leaves the room. But we get this sense that Margaret knew exactly what was coming based on, I guess, his, his demeanor. Mm-hmm. And knows knows what to expect. And once he uh, he tells her, they she immediately she her eyes are watering up. But she refuses to go into grieving mode. She doesn't start wailing. She immediately first thinks that we need to clean up the house and get it ready. We need to get the bed ready because they're going to need somebody somewhere to lay his body. Uh, once Jack brings the body back, and then once the body's brought back, we're we're told that immediately. Uh, women from the town start bringing food within short order, within a short
0: amount of time. And this is when Miss Della comes, brings a cake, and tells tells Jack, you know, pray without ceasing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and and so this there's
1: a sort of vigil going on or a wake of sorts at their houses house immediately as people are helping them as they begin to grieve, and as Jack is sitting is out on the porch, and I I said sitting. Uh, he's not sitting they make a point to say he's not sitting he's kind of pacing around and standing and suddenly a group of men from the town sort of start making their way they can hear them coming and this group of men come up and say uh, to Matt who stands at the top of the steps with his mom standing short ways behind him we don't agree with what Thad did it was wrong we care about we cared about Ben we love Ben and we think that we shouldn't wait for the law to do anything about this we should take it into our own hands and we're ready to so just give it. Basically, saying just give us the word, and we'll go take care of this. And the way they're going to take care of it is shown by a man deep in the crowd raising his hand and showing an already tied noose in his hand, ready to go. That they're basically planning to go force that out of the prison in Hargrave and hang him, um, taking justice into their own hands. But uh, but Matt, the convert- the previous conversations have set in, and Matt knows that responding to evil with evil is not the path that he or his mother more importantly would want uh, and he tells them to stand down and so this this group then disperses either back to the town or the men in the group whose wives are already there taking care of the family and doing the hard work of being with the people who are grieving not just reacting to the people uh, reacting to what happened to cause the grief to which margaret agrees that that is not what they want and then we're told that Jack finally sits down. <laughs> he finally stops pacing around uh, and sits cuz I guess we can assume that he was all the while worrying that this was going to happen at some point.
0: Yeah, well and doesn't that, and doesn't it say that Matt sits and then Jack sits?
1: Yeah, I think Maybe. so. Maybe. Yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cuz Jack's mm-hmm. been waiting just to to watch Matt and and make sure that he's not going to uh fall back into wanting to, to take revenge.
1: And this is kind of the... Maybe even you could describe it as the final step in whatever transaction happened between them in their wrestling match. This is where it's sort of done and done. Yeah. Whatever passed between them, uh, Matt responded in the way that Jack was seems to be hoping he would respond.
0: Yeah. And
2: you know, I'm wrong. It it, it doesn't say that Matt actually sits, sits there. He... But you're right, Jack has heard the response that he needs to hear that there won't be more violence that day, that Matt's life, you know, that Matt's not going to go off and and exact vengeance or have others do that work for him. So you were right, Tim. Okay. And uh, that's even
1: thinking about that feels, dramatically, it feels right because then that leaves Jack sitting back and Matt still standing his ground up at the front of those steps. Mm-hmm. Right. He's still there, and he's he's basically taken over in their line and taking up what his dad has now been robbed of, right? Yeah. And we, one thing we, we haven't talked about with his mother is that she's already dressed in black, yeah. right? That she's already suffered, is it two or three? Three children? I think it's three. Three children who've died.
0: And we're told this in uh, The Hurt Man as well, right? Yeah, this is Nancy, the same the same lady yes. that... Uh, She's she's experienced all of this pain in her life. Did I say yet, Margaret? She's maybe Okay, Margaret is so no. This is it's super confusing. Uh, (laughs) Port William fiction gets super confusing. But Nancy, I believe. Correct me if Mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but I think so. Nancy is uh, Nancy Feltner is Ben's wife. She was Nancy Beacham. She's Jack's sister. Mm -hmm. Margaret is formerly Margaret Finley, but now she's Margaret Feltner, married to Matt. Yeah, I apologize. Andy's grandmother. I think I've said Margaret. I
1: think for those listening, I think I've said Margaret a couple times, meaning Nancy. So I apologize for that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think what something you mentioned, and I, I'd like to talk about this a little bit more, and I do this with trepidation because, again, we're, we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're three men talking about this, but the, the gender roles, I, I feel like Wendell Berry is playing with gender roles in this last exchange in the story. Uh, in a really, really interesting way. Like, on the one hand, you have sort of the stereotypical, like you said, like the, the women are in a caregiving role, right? Mm-hmm. And the men are out plotting vigilante justice or, mm-hmm. or their vision of justice, and they're going to go hang this guy. But it's very clear which gender is morally in the right uh, <laughs> yeah. in in this story. And and, and it's interesting, uh, we, we were actually talking about this before we started recording, but... The, the men come and they speak to Matt, right? They they ask him mm. what he wants them to do, right? They yeah. don't ask Nancy, the widow, right? Um, they assume that Matt is, is in charge here, and, and Matt gives his answer, and it's the right answer. But I want to read... Uh, Nancy steps up after this as well, and I want to read that that section. Nancy under whose feet the earth was not shaking, if it ever had, stepped up beside her son and took his arm. She said to the crowd, I know you are my husband's friends. I thank you. I too must ask you not to do as you propose. Matt has asked you. I have asked you. If Ben could, he would ask you. Let us make what peace is left for us to make. What What do you guys think? think is going on there with this these sort of stereotypical gender roles, but also maybe maybe something else going on there. Or is there something else going on there?
1: I don't know if there's something else going on besides just the fact that she gets the last word. Yeah. You know, I think that she gets the last input and that I, I think very clearly Matt's not opposed to that at all. I mean, Matt probably feels out of his element a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he went from a very simple day of going to the blacksmith shop to suddenly having to like talk down a mob. Um, and he responds as best he can based on what he's already been told by the women of the of the house or the, the lessons he's already learned. And I don't know. I think, um, I think we're definitely supposed to walk away from this, seeing the strength of her, but also the growth of Matt. Mm-hmm. So it's like with Nancy, we're supposed to know that she's strong. She's been strong. She's been through more than anybody else in this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's dealt with more even than Thad and all of his money problems. Like she's, she's lost more yet she's the one who doesn't hesitate she's the one who doesn't even let a tear collect and drop from her eye before she shows her strength and shows her I guess righteousness or whatever I don't think he's it all feels very appropriate though yeah you know I mean even the even the mob approaching Matt first and addressing Matt like of course they would it's 1911 or 1912 or whatever mm-hmm. like that's, that's what would have happened um, but it, it also feels very just the way that it that it wraps up with with, with her, her chiming in with those words because she's, mm-hmm. she's better spoken than he is in this because she's the one who's dealt with grief over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's interesting that this is another yet another story with a that ends with a strong female presence in the story and it is also another story that was written later, right? Yeah, in the 90s. Fidel,
0: Fidelity was, yeah. it
1: was a relatively later story yeah. and it's also a later story like a, or an earlier story in the timeline. We keep talking about this that the first Mm -hmm. three shorts now, the first three short stories that we've talked about have all involved a a strong female presence presence and have all been written later
2: in his career, which is um, pretty fascinating. And and,
1: and and I think that there's,
2: and I think that there's an additional element to that where all three of these stories have strong women who stare down the violence, uh, like or potential violence of the crowd. Yeah remember in the, the first story, the girl in the window, you, Wendell Berry talked again and again about the bunches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the second, the second story, the hurt man, we actually don't know at first whether the crowd that's running up to the house is a friend of the hurt man or um, are there to, to, to pursue him and, and hurt him uh, worse. But you have the, the female protagonist in that story, you know, standing you know, standing in their way <clears throat> so that they can't get through the house to where the hurt man is run. Mm-hmm. And here you have again a strong female character that same Nancy Beacham.
0: That same strong it, female character, yeah. Is it was it, was yeah. it Nancy Beecham? Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she's so she's been in this you know, has been in a, a a similar stance before. Right.
0: Yeah. And and Rebecca Daw is actually in this story as well. Uh Rebecca Finley. After she's married, she shows up to take Bess, uh, Andy Catlett's mother, who's who's a little girl. Um, she shows up to take her, which is which is kind of cool to see these these stories connecting to one another.
2: Um, yeah, so it's the you have the the strong female characters, and then you have many of the men in the story uh, in this story sort of being portrayed within the context of crowds mm-hmm. uh, and bunches. Uh, there are even uh, there's even a point in this story in which Wendell Berry says the crowd said such and such. You know, he doesn't even bother to 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 designate or to name the individual speaker in the crowd. Yeah. It's the crowd said. He doesn't even show us the face of the person who holds
1: up the noose either. It's just yeah. like, it's just a, a hand that anonymously bursts out of the crowd. I guess that's the definition of a mob, right? Right. They don't yeah. have an identity besides the
0: identity of the mob right. and the mission
1: of the mob and its arm, well, and, its arm and, pops and up.
0: And what sort of disperses it is is Matt inviting them to come in and... and eat with him mm-hmm. like at the oh, end and yeah. their, which and their wives are already inside. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. He has done yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Done. Um That is, that
1: is a, we, we go back to the, the Christian yeah story. I mean, that's probably the strongest feeling I got throughout the reading was that moment where he says, "Come, we eat with us? Oh, I, a, I tear up every time I read yeah, that. Yeah. It's a, it's a moment of communion. It's a moment of like, just, just come share a meal with us. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that's going to help anyone. Is just to, just to eat together.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe the maybe the last thing that I, I think might be good for us to acknowledge and and maybe discuss, and I think we'll probably discuss this off and on as we continue to move through through the fiction, is you know one of the criticisms that gets made toward Wendell Berry's fiction is that uh, in some way it's it's too idealistic about uh, rural communities, right? There was uh, an essay that, that made the rounds on the internet in Wendell Berry circles on the internet. <laughs> uh, from, uh, it, was, it was an essay that was actually published in uh, the publication Plow by Tamar Hill Murphy. The title of it is The Hole in Wendell Berry's Gospel, Why the Agrarian Dream, is not enough. And she essentially makes the argument that Wendell Berry's Port William fiction does not consider sort of the underside of agrarian or, or rural communities. So, I mean, I, I feel like this story is sort of an interesting test case. I mean, it is a a story where Wendell Berry is acknowledging darkness. Um, but I do want to read just, just a little paragraph from... Tamar Hill Murphy's essay and, and see if you guys think that, uh, that this story is a, a good sort of counter argument to, to her argument, or maybe she has a point. Um, she says, the dissonance with Barry occurs when I consider other family tales buried in under the agrarian beauty. These are stories of shattered relationships, addiction, job loss, abandonment, mental illness, and unspoken violations that seem to separate my kinfolk from the clans in Port William. She, uh, her her family came from a rural area in, in upstate New York, I believe. In Barry's fictional village, readers occasionally witness felonies, infidelity, drunken brawls, and tragic deaths, but all of them seem to be told in a dusky, warming light. What do you guys? What do you guys think about that? Is is pray without ceasing sort of a a, a counter argument to that, or do you think she sort of has a point? My answer is both.
1: Yeah. Because I think in one sense, in just uh, Windlebury stays very true to what Port William is and what kind of town it is. And Port William is a town that's untouched by industry, right? And at a this lot point, of yeah. at, at this point, yeah. And a lot of the like factory jobs and these kinds of things that went away that then have led to the job loss and the addiction and all the things that have happened in these rural communi- communities. I don't think this story counters it really in, in, in that sense like like a Ron Rash story would, which mm. is much more modern where Ron Rash stories are tend to the gritty where he, I think he does tend toward the idealistic but not in a sort of un, not in a necessarily unfounded way. Because yeah. this is a town that is innocent, not just for the sake of being innocent but for the sake of geographically it's like literally cut off by water and land, and that it hasn't really been touched by you know the Hargrave sheriff talking about this place being this like weird wild west where mm-hmm. like what are they doing over there yeah. <laughs> um, just that kind of attitude, so I think it's a, it's a fair point that it's leaving out a large part of the the experience of the agrarian life and in these rural communities. Um, But at the same time, I don't think it's... I don't think he's avoiding it by design, by any
2: any stretch of the imagination. What do you think, John? When I read... When I first read her essay in Plow magazine, I found myself getting really defensive. uh, And not... uh, And Wendell Berry doesn't need me to get defensive uh, (laughs) on this behalf. And so, you know, I read it a couple of times to because <clears throat> I realized I needed to give it more careful consideration. I will admit, though, when I was reading this story, her essay came to mind and I, I found myself you know saying to myself, see, see, you know, here's this not only tragic, but I think, you know, graphic story. And it's maybe it's not gritty, but I also don't think it's I would just des- describe it as being told in a dusky, warming light, even though I guess maybe it is because it's Margaret Feltner talking telling it to Andy. Uh, perhaps in dusky warming light we're not really told what the what the temperature of the room is but <laughs> to me the to me this I, I don't this is not a story that is depicted in pastels. i think it is it's a sad story i mean it has a i mean would you say it has a moral or a message i feel like it comes pretty close to having that mm-hmm. and maybe maybe she is being critical of of so the way that some of his writing i I guess steps right up to the edge of being didactic mm-hmm. early on in
1: in this podcast, I remember talking about telling you guys that at, at certain times I have that feeling that his fiction, though I love it to death, can approach cheesy for me, and I had said that like almost in like a hallmarky way, not totally. that was just like the the lazy description I think that I came up with, and I think that maybe that what, what you just described is what I feel combined with what I had said before though now what I've grown to understand is that it's I don't think it's by design I don't think he's avoiding anything
2: I think that's just what Port William is he wants to stay true to that yeah we so what actually this story brought to mind was the shooting of the children at Nickel Mines the Amish at the Amish schoolhouse where i mean you had this incredibly incredibly tragic awful event that happened where this deranged, broken man opened fire on these Amish schoolchildren. I can't remember how many he killed, maybe 10, 10 or 11. And the news went around the world. But so did the response of the Amish community to to this man's family, where they invited his family to come eat with them and to, and to pray with them and invited them to the services. And so you have a You know, a a real world example of a community of people who are not choosing not to repay evil for evil, doing their best to forgive in the midst of 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 tragedy. And, you know, I don't think that. Yeah, I mean, that's not a pastel story because it ends in forgiveness and as a as a story about the power of not returning evil for evil, but but rather choosing to love your enemies
0: um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it can't be pastel because it happened, right? Like it's, it's yeah. real. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, and, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about this more later, but, um, I think, I think that Tamer Hill Murphy has, has some good things to say and has, has maybe some valid criticisms to make, but I, I, I think that she mistakes, Barry's project in his fiction, I, I think she assumes that he's going for sort of straight realism in his fiction, and and I don't think that's what he's going for. Um, I don't either. The, We'll we'll get to this in like five years probably, but <laughs> uh, but but his book about William Carlos Williams is is really was really revelatory to me just in terms of his aesthetic and, and his approach to literature to writing literature. Uh, imagination for him is is very important, and he says that what he's trying to do in his poetry and in his fiction is to to imagine the kind of world. That could exist if people did live by, uh, hmm. live by love, right? And I think that, that that's what's going here. I mean, I I don't know if we could say that the story has a happy ending. Thad Coulter does kill himself, mm-hmm. which is which is tragic, yeah, uh, the family a- tragic. Just- even though he he's loved, he can't bear that love, and and he kills himself. But it, but the story does end in forgiveness, and, and uh, I'm glad you brought that story. Up, John, um, about the Amish community because this kind of thing does happen. Uh, it's not unrealistic because it it has happened and it does happen. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is a story about forgiveness, and so Andy's memory at the end is is a memory of his grandfather's forgiveness that has allowed Andy to exist. Right? Uh, if there had been a family feud between the Feltners and the Coultners and the and the Coulters, Andy would not have existed. Right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a,
1: that's a great place to, yeah, to lead into. I'm glad you, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think that that's one thing that sort of takes the false polish off of the story or something is Andy acknowledging that this story, this silence that was ringing in my ears my entire life, now that I understand it. Now that now that I've heard this story for the first time, and he's not a young man at this point, or, or you know, not a child at this point, <clears throat> now that I've heard it, now that I understand it, the result is Andy having a greater appreciation for what he does have, not what he like missed out on or what he's lacking in, not having his great, you know, not having been here because first of all he exists, but also all the sort of domino effect that's come, mm-hmm. that's come after that. It's kind of it's some. It's pretty pretty fascinating bookends that don't make it very pretty because at the beginning of the story he's come back to the farm and he's dealing with uh, farm business despite him having kind of like a different upbringing and being college educated and all that and then by the end of it um, he has a greater appreciation for here we are, greater appreciation for the land where he came from and the history that it holds within it and, and what led him to the place that he is right now.
0: Yeah. Well... Is there anything in this story that that we haven't got to that, that you guys wanted to make sure we we covered? I mean, it's a it's a long story. We haven't touched on touched on all of it
1: for sure. I think I the one thing that had stuck out to me that that is kind of a an entry in the greatest hits of Wendell Berry is that that he does he does take a second in the story to mention what he calls one of the characteristic diseases of the 20th century, the suspicion that they would be greatly improved if they were someplace else. Right. Yeah, I thought that was just an interesting thing to point out that he he does take a second to point that out. Just this this idea that Port William, the beginning of time, and it, this is a very much a a product of American history and the American dream. Just the idea that you can be anything you want, but if you want to be a movie star, you can't stay in Port William, or if you want to right. be a if you want to be a a millionaire lawyer, you can't stay in Port William. And so this he he's acknowledging this idea of. America that is is eventually fractured communities because people grow up thinking well I can be anything right I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna grow up to be anything I want as long as I work hard I can get it it's the American dream but it's this but he but he refers to that as a disease because even if you go off and achieve that thing whatever it is that you want um, that there is something lost there there's something broken there's some sort of horror in living a carefree life and getting exactly what you want when you want it and how you want it i just thought that that line stuck out to me that's one we hadn't uh talked about that i i certainly wanted to mention well tabby
0: you said you were reading the the great gatsby right now right and that was absolutely what i was thinking about
1: (laughs) i'm teaching the great gatsby right now and so that was that that
0: I mean, just Certainly. those 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 magnificent last lines of The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. like "So we beat on, and bore yeah. back endlessly into the into the past." Yes, know? absolutely. Uh, um, that's you know, uh, an American problem that American writers keep pointing out, and we still can't we, we still can't, can't, seem can't to get still it right. can't figure yeah. out.
1: <laughs> we also can't figure out. You know, what to do when a, a horse turd hits you in the eye and gives you a black eye. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. a, frozen, so that's horse a frozen
0: horse turd. A yeah. frozen horse turd thrown by a so,
1: power of the air. Yeah, so uh, my, my second favorite quote from the story, uh, in the previous winter, a young culture by the name of Burley, oh, God, Burley, I love you, uh, yeah. <laughs> Burley had claimed that he had an eye blackened by a frozen horse turd thrown, so far as he could determine, by the power of air. <laughs> um, oh gosh, loved loved the little uh, little cameo from Burley Culture, and when what was that when when Matt was asking him if he'd seen anything interesting or yeah. anything
0: interesting
1: <laughs> uh, i i don't have the i don't have the quote in front he, he of me, like had a
0: knowing look and yeah. said yes like, sir or something yeah, like that. yeah yeah he's just
1: like of course i did yeah yeah i found all kinds of stuff out so so um,
0: burley coulter is comic relief in uh, even in this even in this story yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah in a story that he he only has like one line yeah we can laugh about him getting Getting himself into a situation that leads to him getting hit in the eye with a frozen, frozen horse turd. Yeah. Yeah. And those are Wendell Berry's words, not mine. Yeah. Um, frozen <laughs> horse turd. So, um, yeah, that's, that's all I've got. You guys got anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't leave that one. That was just a, a low-hanging fruit right there.
0: Yeah, John, any, anything else uh, that struck you about this story before we close? No, we covered most of what I had marked.
1: Yeah. Great. Makes me want more Jack yeah I say that yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to talking about memory of old Jack that' yeah. was, that's a it's a fantastic book and I mean, we'll we'll see him before then, sure, course, but uh, it's just a wonderful book yeah
0: and already i'm I'm struck already we're like trying to get the Port William family trees straight. Uh, yeah, it's already getting confusing but <laughs> but, uh, but but we'll we'll give it our all. Thanks friends for listening to episode seven of the membership. In our next episode, we'll be discussing selections from Wendell Berry's 1969 collection of poems titled Findings, all of which you can find in the new collected poems. We hope you'll read along with us. The excerpts read in this episode can be found in That Distant Land, or Fidelity, which were written by Wendell Berry and published by Counterpoint Press. If you like what you heard, please take a few minutes to rate and review us on iTunes. This helps others find the podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle MembershipPod or find us online at MembershipPod.com. The Membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, visit RabbitRoom.com podcasts.